Amen, guys. Amazing. Behold our God. That's what we want to do today. That's what we want to do in this sermon today as we continue our series through the Apostles' Creed. I invite you to take your Bibles and let's turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll read together verses 8 through, excuse me, 4 through 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read together verses 4 through 6. This is God's holy word for us, His people today. God's word says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Let's ask Him to bless our time in His word. Father, we thank you for the gift of Holy Scripture. Bless now, we pray, not simply the reading, which has power in itself, but bless now, especially, we pray, the preaching, that as this word is opened up and as we consider the things that you have for us today, that you would write your truth upon our hearts, you would enlarge our vision of who you are, that we would truly behold our God through the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we continue our series through the Apostles' Creed. We recite it in the context of worship, and we say we believe it. Christian, what do you believe? I believe, we say, and we say it every week. But what does it mean? What are we saying that we believe when we say this creed? The Apostles' Creed, in case anyone was wondering or was, had been sort of made a wrong guess about this, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles themselves. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the back of your hymnal, it'd be in your Bible. <laughs> but it's not in your Bible, it's in the back of your hymnal. The Apostles themselves did not write the Apostles' Creed. Rather, it's called the Apostles' Creed because it is a summary statement of the core of the Apostles' teaching. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that after Pentecost, 2,000 people get saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they form the church in Jerusalem. And it says that they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching. And out of that devotion to that teaching... The early church formulated the Apostles' Creed as this summary statement of the core of the Apostles' teaching. This is the essence of the Christian faith as the Apostles communicated it and preserved it and passed it on to us. And so in this series, we want to go through the Creed line by line and see what each part means, 
where it's found in Scripture, and the difference it makes in our Christian lives. Last week, we began with the opening words of the creed, the I believe. The opening word in the original Latin of the creed, credo or credo, the I believe in Latin, and that's where we get the name creed, the I believe. Last week, we talked about faith. We talked about the nature of faith in today's world. We emphasized the fact that faith is not the enemy of reason and evidence. It's not the enemy of facts. It's not even the enemy of science. We saw that faith is well-founded trust that something is true or dependable. Although faith does go beyond what can be unquestionably proven with absolute, rational, undoubted certainty, faith is not therefore unreasonable or irrational. We learned from Hebrews chapter 4 last week that faith consists of confidence in God and His Word trusting in Jesus and hoping in His promises. Faith consists of conviction, holding fast to our beliefs because they matter deeply to us. And faith consists of commitment, living out our beliefs daily with faithfulness to God's truth and loyalty to God's will. That was last week, and therefore we concluded that Our Christian faith, summarized in this creed, taught us in the Scriptures, our Christian faith is still viable and still livable in our world today. And indeed, it is still vital. The world needs true faith, faithful Christians today. The world still needs the Christian faith, perhaps now, just as much as it ever did. That's last week. This morning, we are going to look at the rest of the opening line of the creed. Not just I believe, but the rest of that line. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This morning, the topic is completely about who God is. Completely about who God. Now, every sermon should be about God. Every sermon should be about the gospel, Christ. It should include God, right? It's a Christian sermon. God and Christ need to be there. But today, the whole sermon is just about who God is. Just so we can know Him more. Just so we can know Him better. And this, you might think, doesn't sound very practical. Doesn't sound like immediately something I can go out and do But that's okay, because we're going to go out and get our practice wrong if we get God wrong. We need to know God as He really is. Can you think of a more important topic? There are lots of things we need to know in life. Lots of things we need to learn in this world. But number one on that list is knowing God. A.W. Tozer has this amazing, powerful quote. Tozer says this. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If that's true, 
that could either be very reassuring or very terrifying. Because it makes us think, how well do I know God? If this is the most important thing about me, then I need to spend serious time thinking about who God is. In fact, Jesus himself says, John 17, 3, that knowing God is at the heart of eternal life. This is eternal life, Jesus says, in a prayer to to the Father, knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God is vital, and we need to get God right. The creed prompts us to reflect on who is this God we say we believe in every week. As we turn now to consider the first line of the creed and see what it teaches us about God, notice that it states three descriptions of Him. God is, number one, He's the Father. Number two, He's almighty. And number three, He is the maker of heaven and earth. These are three essential, non-negotiable attributes of the Christian understanding of God. These three attributes are central to the apostles' proclamation of the Christian revelation. And we are going to look, we're going to look at each, of, each one of these from Scripture today. But before we do that, before we do that, we need to take a step back and think about the very concept of God. What does it mean to be God? There was a time when you could talk to other Christians and unbelievers And you could say the word God and talk about God, and you could have some confidence that you all know what you're talking about. That day is long gone. Because when one person says God, they might have something completely different that you never would have thought of when you say God, or when you hear him say God, when you hear that person say God. So we can't just assume that we all know what we're talking about. We need to step back and say, when when I say I believe in God, before I get to Father, before I get to Almighty, before I get to Maker of heaven and earth, what do I mean by just the word God? What does it mean to be God? When we analyze the concept of God philosophically, we discover three other essential attributes that must be true of any being that has any legitimate claim to the name God. So let's think deeply now about God's nature and consider what it means to be God. The best philosophical definition of God ever devised was produced by a medieval theologian in England named Anselm, Saint Anselm. Anselm defined God like this. This is, this, you can't do better than this. God is the greatest conceivable being. The greatest conceivable being. Whatever you, whether you believe God exists or not, this is the definition of the being in question. What doesn't exist or what does exist? The greatest conceivable being. Theists and atheists alike agree that if there really is a God, this must be what God is, the greatest conceivable being. 
Now, what does this definition mean, to put it in plain terms? It means, Christian, that God is greater and better than you could possibly imagine. God is greater and better than you could possibly imagine. And from this definition, we derive the first of our three additional attributes of what it means to be God. If God is the greatest conceivable being, greater and better than we could possibly imagine, then we must conclude that God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. Incomprehensible does not mean that human beings are utterly incapable of knowing or understanding God. Rather, it means that we can never fully know or understand God. It's the same thing as saying that you can't, you can't give Mount Everest a hug and get your fingers to touch on the other side. You can't fully hug a mountain. And in the same way, your mind can't fully get itself around God. He cannot be fully known. He cannot be fully understood. All of our knowledge of God is at best incomplete and imperfect. The greatness of God is so vast. It is immeasurable by the human mind. If you think of God as a being you can fully comprehend, then he isn't the greatest conceivable being because I can think of a greater one, namely one I can't fully comprehend. You see, if he's a God you can fully understand, he's not the greatest because a greater being would be one I can't fully understand. And this is fully backed up by Scripture. Job 36, 26, Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable. Psalm 145, 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. God is incomprehensible. We must always keep this divine attribute in mind when it comes to what we think we know about God. All human knowledge concepts and ideas. All human language, images, and symbols about God are always partial, fragmentary, and limited by our creaturely finitude. Our best, highest, purest thinking about God falls unimaginably short of capturing Him as He is in Himself. Kind of like the way a photograph of someone you love falls short of seeing them in person. All our knowledge of God is picture thinking. All we have to go on is the divine revelation that He has given us brought down to our creature-sized level so that we can handle it. 
All we have in this life is the photograph of God in his revelation. It's true and accurate and reliable and glorious as far as it goes, but it's still not the whole reality. Our minds can never discover the whole reality until we go on to glory and actually lay the photograph aside and see and face to glorious face. And even then, Christian, it will take all of eternity for you to get to the bottom of God. And that's good news because that means eternity won't be boring after the first, you know, quadruple billion years. (laughs) There's more. There's always more to see and know. He's that great. He's the greatest conceivable being. He's incomprehensible. He's greater. He's better than you could possibly imagine. And the revelation he's given to us of himself, the part we can grasp in this life, it's sufficient for us. He has not given us less than we need. He's given us exactly what we need to know him well enough He's given us enough of Himself to know Him truly and live for Him fully. But know that it's not the whole picture. From our definition of God, we can go further. And we can develop a more detailed concept of God. Yes, He's the greatest conceivable being, and therefore, number one, He's incomprehensible. But now, we can go further. And we can go from a definition to a more detailed concept of what God is. If God is the greatest conceivable being, then our concept of God must be this. God is a perfect being and the sole ultimate foundation of reality. God is a perfect being and the sole or exclusive ultimate foundation of reality. In addition to, number one, God is incomprehensible. These are the other two essential attributes of what it means to be God. God alone is absolutely perfect, and God alone is the ultimate foundation of reality. God is perfect. God possesses all possible perfection. His being and nature, His life and existence... His faculties and powers, His character and motives, His knowledge and affections, and His purposes and His plans and His will and His actions, absolutely everything that God is and everything God has, everything in God and everything about God, it's all characterized by the greatest conceivable perfection. It is impossible for God to be greater or better than He actually is by His own nature. This is the being we're up against trying to figure out today. He's incomprehensible and He's perfect. And then third, God is the sole ultimate foundation of reality. This is directly asserted in our passage in 1 Corinthians 8, look what it says. He's talking about idols. Is it okay for the Corinthians to offer food to idols? Or is it okay, answer is no, is it okay for the Corinthians to like buy meat that was in the market and someone says, hey, that meat was used in a sacrifice at the temple of Apollo you know, earlier this morning. You sure you want to be eating that? It's, it's, it's been offered to an idol. Isn't it like 
Aren't you afraid you're going to like consume like something of the idol in there? Like this is idolatry. We can't eat meat that was used in a sacrifice to a foreign god that's being sold in the market. That's what he's up against. And he says, look, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. It's not a god. And that there is no god but one. Although there may be so-called gods and so-called lords, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. That's what it means to be God, to be the one God, the sole ultimate foundation of all other reality outside of himself. The one God is the source, the origin of all other being, all other reality, all other existence. God's existence and His perfection are independent of all other existence and perfection. God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. He does not gain any of his being or any of his perfection from any other reality outside of himself. Rather, God alone is the ultimate source of all other reality. And as the source of all other reality, God neither gains nor loses any of his greatness or any of his goodness. God is the source of the universe But the universe is never a source of God in any way. God relates to the world. And God interacts with the world. And God responds to the world in real and genuine ways. But He is not changed by the world. As we sung in our hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, For naught changeth thee, nothing Alters, nothing adds to or takes away from God's absolute perfection. This is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it in question four. It asks the question, What is God? And it gives this answer. It says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What does it mean to be God? It means God has maximal greatness and maximal goodness beyond our ability to conceive of it all. He is greater and better than you could possibly imagine. And guys, this is His glory. This is His glory. Maximal greatness plus maximal goodness equals matchless glory. God isn't just the greatest conceivable being, guys. He is, the, he is the most glorious conceivable being. The only one worthy of our highest worship, of our deepest affection, and of our total obedience. So when you say, I believe in God, this is the first thing that should come into your mind. You should think to yourself... 
Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God. When I say that, I am saying I believe in the one who is far greater and far better than I could ever imagine. I believe in the one who is the being of ultimate matchless glory. I believe in the one who is the only one who deserves my soul and my life and my all. It's not a small thing to say you believe in God because God is not a small thing and He is not a trifling matter. I believe in God has a massive mountain load of content behind it and it ought to really mean something when we say it. I believe in God. That's what it means to be God. To this initial starting point, the creed goes on to add three attributes that we recited earlier. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Let's take a few moments and look at each of these. First, the Father Almighty. To say that God is Father indicates, first of all, His primary relationships. In a sense, God is the Father of all human beings as their Creator. Paul says this in Acts 17, 26 to 29. We are all His offspring. And in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, in the genealogy of Jesus, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy from Mary and Joseph all the way back to Adam, like that Adam, in the beginning in Genesis. And Luke there calls Adam the Son of God. God is the Father of all human beings in this sense that He is their Maker. He's the one who created human beings. He gave them life and existence. God is also, in a more exclusive way, the Father of His people. Exodus 4, 22, Israel is my son, my firstborn. 1 John 3, 1, Behold what kind of love the Father has for us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. So God is the Father of all human beings on one level, just in the sense that He made everybody. He's the founder of humanity. But in another sense, He's not the Father of everybody in a, in a redemptive, saving sense. He's the Father of His people, the Father of Israel under the Old Covenant, the Father of you under the New Covenant because you believe in Jesus. But more importantly than that, the creed is not specifically putting, getting us to think about those ways that God is Father. The creed is most concerned to say, who is God? God is the Father of Jesus. I believe in God, the Father, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. That's the Father we're talking about. We're talking about the God and Father of Jesus 2 Corinthians 1.3, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of Jesus, of the Lord. The Lord has a God. The Lord has a Father, the Father of Jesus. Our God is Jesus' God. Our God is Jesus' Father. To say that God is Father specifically the God and Father of Jesus, indicates not only His primary relationships, but it also indicates His fundamental character. This is, this is vital for us. 
Jesus reveals the Father's heart to us in His parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You want to know the heart of the Father. What is the fundamental character, the fundamental motivation of God? It's the way Jesus showed us who He is. There are lots of other people who might think of God as their Father in some way, in some other religion. But we, as Christians, believe that God is the kind of Father Jesus showed us that He is and told us that He is. The kind of Father that has His character put on display in the life of Jesus. God is like Jesus. We see the face of God in the face of Jesus. We see the Father's loving, happy heart for His children in the teachings of Jesus. That's who we think He is. His fundamental character is that of a father. You know, some people find it really hard to relate to God as a father because maybe they grew up with a bad father or an absent father. And I, maybe you know people like this. I have known people who just, they just couldn't bring themselves to call God Father, even in prayer. They never said Father. They always said, Dear God, or God, or something like that. They just couldn't even bring themselves to say Father, even in prayer. Because for them to think of God as a Father, it just brings up too many hurtful memories and too many painful feelings. But just think, just think, when we call God Father, we mean He is the greatest conceivable Father. He is a Father who is greater and better than you could possibly imagine. Whatever you imagine a perfect human father would have been or was for you, God is that and immeasurably more so. His love, His tenderness, His care, His kindness, His interest in you, His attention, His approval, His delight in you, His desire to spend time with you and show up for you, His overflowing goodness and generosity towards you, His patience and understanding and forgiveness. He has all that and so much more in perfect, endless supply, unchanging and unconditional just for you as His precious daughter or His precious Son. And if you think of God like this, as Jesus taught us to do, maybe, just maybe, it might be the first step for you towards healing from all those old painful wounds that some of you may have been carrying for years. God is a perfect heavenly Father, better and greater than you could ever ask for or imagine. Know Him as Father and feel His love heal and warm your heart. Notice the creed says, God is not only the Father, but He is the Father Almighty. This means that God is all-powerful, and it indicates His complete sovereignty over all things. 
Daniel chapter 4, famously, verses 34 and 35. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He is almighty. But listen, it is vital that we, that we get these two attributes together, that these two attributes go together. If God were only almighty, he might be the greatest conceivable tyrant. If God were only a perfect father, he might be good, but he would not be great enough to be sovereign. But since God is both Father and Almighty, we know that His perfect power is guided and wielded by His perfect goodness. His goodness is sovereign and His sovereignty is good. This is what it means when the creed says that God is the Father Almighty. The final thing that the creed says this morning for us is that God is the maker of heaven and earth. We already spoke about this earlier when we considered the concept of God. God is the sole ultimate foundation of reality. He's the source of all other existence besides His own. But here the creed says that the specific way that reality proceeds from its divine source is by means of creation. God originates the universe by making it. Here, the creed uses the analogy of human invention. When a person creates something, he or she thinks up something to make in their mind, forms an intention to make it, designs its construction, devises a plan of action, and then does the work of actually making it. You didn't have to make that thing you made. You did it because you wanted to. You did it freely. You did it for your own reasons, for your own purposes. And this is analogous to God's creation of the universe. He dreamed up the universe. It's His idea. He designed it. He worked out all of its details. He devised a plan for it. He has a purpose for it. And then he performed the act of creating it, of bringing it into being. At one point, God existed all alone without the universe. Then he freely made the universe according to his own intentions and his own purposes. And so, Christian, that means that your existence and the existence of the universe is a gift of God. Existence is grace. He did not have to create you. He didn't have to create this world. He didn't have to create anything at all. He could have created other people besides us. He could have created us other people in other worlds besides this one. Or he could have refrained from making anything at all, and it would just be God forever and ever. He made heaven and earth, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. 
He brought the world into being and continuously supplies this universe and your life with existence, energy, motion, and direction. He fills the world with its greatness. He fills the world with its beauty and with its goodness. He made you and gives you all that you have. You live as His creature in His world under His constant care and provision, which is called His providence. God sustains and operates His world, and He is always at work behind the scenes, Christian, working all things together for your good, keeping all of His promises, directing all of creation to its final destiny. Tozer says, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. This is the Christian God of the Apostles' Creed. This is the God and Father of Jesus. This is your God. Your God. Let us know Him. Let us draw in and search His Word and think deep thoughts of Him and contemplate Him. Let Him occupy part of your day, part of your mental furniture. Let Him just be there in the room, in your thoughts. Dwell upon who He is, the greatest conceivable being, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Know Him, Christian, and think of Him like this when you say, I believe in God. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, maker of heaven and earth, I pray that you would open our minds so that we could catch a glimpse of how awesome, fearsome, powerful, and great you really are. And may that change, may that change us deeply and affect us deeply and move us deeply to want to draw near to you, to know you as you have revealed yourself to be. And let our knowledge of God change our hearts and lives. Let it change how we think of you and talk of you, how we use your name, how we discuss you with other people, how we pray to you, how we relate to you. May it put us on our knees in wonder and holy awe before the one who is greater and better than we could ever possibly imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.